ahead and make yourself comfortable. Turn to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Last time, we opened up sort of a by accident series, and we talked about happiness. Uh, what I mean by by accident series is I was trying to figure out how I wanted to close one in one year and open another, and I wound up coming up with some ideas. We didn't really package it as a series, but last time I reminded you that New Year's or the transition from one year to the next is a very, very fertile time in our lives quite often because more than any other time in our lives, we ponder the path of our feet. We start thinking in terms of goals and, and life change, and that's not something that we do typically throughout the remainder of the year. It's almost like there's something intuitive or, or subconscious that when you turn the page on a calendar, something in your mind clicks and says, oh, I better get serious about my life. And so we make a series of resolutions. Things are going to be different in the coming year. We're going to, we're going to make some changes with our life. And I told you last time that I find most New Year's resolutions fall into one of three categories. They're, they're either related, first of all, to our happiness, because happiness is what most of us are searching for. That's why we make New Year's resolutions. We want to be happier in 2022 than we were in 2021. That's why we make some of the resolutions we make. That's why we're going to hit the gym. That's why we're going to work out. That's why we're going to lift weights. That's why we're going to eat right. We're going to exercise. If we feel better about ourselves, maybe we'll be happier in the coming year. And then New Year's, relate, New Year's resolutions are often related to the subject of time, which we're going to discuss today. Uh, resolutions, by definition, are priorities, and priorities are always related to time. More time, more meaningful time, a better use of my time. When we make New Year's resolutions, that's in the back of our minds as we do so. And then significance. Who wouldn't want to feel more significant in 2022? Who, who wouldn't want to feel better about themselves in the coming year? So what I kind of accidentally decided to do over the last few weeks is let's see what God has to say about our happiness, about our time, and about our significance. Um, raise your hand if you like your driver's license photo. Please raise your hand if oh, it's a good photo. Okay, look. Look how few hands are raised. You people are the exception. I just want you to know that. Most of us hate our driver's license photograph. When I went in to renew my driver's license a few years ago, the blue screen that you stand against came up to about here. And so the lady says, oh, sir, I'm sorry, you're going to have to squat down a little bit. So, so I'm squatting down, and then she says, she says, lean forward for me, please. So, so I'm going, <laughs> and bam, she snaps the picture. To make it worse, I had been sick, badly sick, for like three days. I would have never even left the house if it hadn't been for the renewal of my driver's license. And so my eyes are all puffy. Uh, I just look terrible. And, you know, I had the wisdom that day to go ahead and sign up for that eight-year driver's license, so I'm stuck with that thing for a long time. There's something about a DMV camera that brings out our worst side, not necessarily our best. Now, I am married to a blonde and have been for 30 years. Uh, I know blonde jokes aren't as popular today as they once were due to this political correct crud that we live with, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you one because it's a good one. Uh, Amy left the church one afternoon and she was headed home 
And she got pulled over right up here around this curve. The police officer said, do you realize you were speeding? Oh, now if you know my wife, this is something that's just going to tear her up inside. So the police officer says, ma'am, I need to see your driver's license. She said, driver's license? What? What's that? He says, oh, come on. It's that thing with your picture on it. It's got to be in your car somewhere. So Amy starts looking through her purse, and she starts reaching over and going through the glove box. In the process of moving around that car, she sees herself in the rearview mirror. There's the picture of me, she says. So she tears off the rearview mirror, hands it to the police officer, says, there, a picture of me. He looks at it, says, oh, ma'am. I didn't realize that you were a police officer. I'm sorry. Go on your way. Have a nice day. Okay, maybe it wasn't as funny as I thought it was. That's because you thought it was real at the beginning, didn't you? Nobody likes their driver's license photo. Well, as I reminded you last time, all of us carry around another photograph of ourselves that we've, been, we've had for a very long time. It's been developing all of our lives. Now, thankfully, it's not laminated in plastic, and it can be changed. That's what's beautiful about it. We call it our self-image, and it relates to our self-esteem. It's an image of ourselves that we've been putting together and building throughout our entire life. And psychologists tell us that one of the ways we build or develop our self-esteem is by trying to answer three very important questions. They're hardwired into, into our psyche. The first question is, how do I look? How do I look? Very, very important question, especially when you're young and growing up. In our culture, physical appearance, physical attractiveness is very, very important. That's why we spend so much money on the clothes and the shoes that we wear. Uh, physical attractiveness is part of the drive to figure out how we look to the rest of the world. And physical attractiveness is that, that hope that if I, if I look a certain way, if my physical appearance hits a certain mark, then I'm going to feel better about myself and I'll be happy. Again, how do I look has a lot to do with many of the res uh, resolutions that we make throughout the year. That's question number one. Question number two is how do I do? How do I do? This is a performance evaluation and appreciation question. How do I do? Everybody has this innate desire to fill a role, to play a part, and then be, do, do well, and then be applauded for it. And then the third question is, how important am I? Moms and dads, you've got to realize that every day in your home, your children are asking an unspoken question. How important am I, mom? How important am I, dad? Question of significance. Now, last time we learned that our best opportunity for a happy new year is found in surrender to an almighty God. In light of Psalm 39 and God's omniscience, his omnipresence, he's everywhere at one time, he knows all things, he's everywhere at one time, and his omnipotence, he can do anything, surrender would seem like our likely response to God, but it isn't for most people. Based upon God's character and attributes, in fact, this was the big point last time, here it is, last time, the only life that can deliver on a happy new year is the surrendered life, because the surrendered life is the blessed life. Now, that was last time. This time I want to talk about your time. Your time. Three questions that we examined earlier are a wonderful distraction 
from God's purpose. They rob us of our time. It's very easy to get wrapped up on those three questions. How do I look? We could spend decades worried about how we look. How do I do? And how significant am I? You know, I find the subject of time quite interesting as we age. Okay? It seems like from like one year old to 40, you're more concerned with how much time you've had, past tense. You care more about the time you've spent. Ask a seven-year-old over there in Kids Jam, hey, buddy, how old are you? And he's liable to respond, seven and a half. You're very, that half year, those six months, that's very important when you're six, okay? Because that means you're almost eight. You're almost nine. Talk to a 12-year-old who's almost a teenager. That is a very big deal. Speaking of driver's licenses, I cannot express to you how fantastic it was when I turned 16 and could go get my driver's license. We graduate high school. We're looking forward to college. We're thinking about the time we've had. And oh, by the way, you ever notice how slowly time passes when you're a child? How slowly time passes when you're a teenager? Church to a 12-year-old lasts three and a half weeks, right? And then you get a little older. And now we say we're 29 and holding. We don't want to be 30. We're 39 and holding because we don't want to be 40, right? But something changes at 40 or somewhere thereabouts. And we stop thinking about all the time we've had and we start worrying about the time we've got left, right? How much time is left? Mothers say things like, it seems like just yesterday I sent him off to kindergarten and now look, he's graduating from high school. Now we're looking forward with the time we have remaining It's quite interesting to me. Consider this. When we're young, the point in life is me. But then the older we get, the more we begin to question the point. Maybe, I don't know, arbitrary numbers from 1 to 40, life is all about me. It's all about me. What I want, what I hope to achieve or acquire, where I'm going, but at some point in midlife, that typically changes because we start to question the point. I mean, we ask ourselves, we say, wait a minute, I came from a pretty good home. Wasn't perfect, but it's pretty good. I went to school. I earned a degree. I established a career. I started a family. I got married, have a couple of kids. And now I've been working the same job for 17 years. And we start to question the point. It is by definition, the midlife crisis. That transition is what a midlife crisis is. We're very conscious of time in our culture. It's why people wear a wristwatch. I used to wear a wristwatch. I used to really get into buying a new watch, especially when those big ones became popular. Remember them giant watches? Maybe some of you are wearing a giant watch right now. I'm not trying to say you're old-fashioned. I'm just saying that's what I was into, right? But then you got to where you carry your cell phone around with you all the time, so why wear a wristwatch? Your cell phone will tell you. Every time you drive by the bank or the courthouse, you're reminded of the time. We're very conscious of time in our culture. Wristwatch, cell phone, banks, courthouse, what time is it we ask? Maybe for different reasons. Maybe because it seems like too much time when we're young. We're waiting on something and it's never going to get here. 
Or maybe it's because we're worried of how much time we have left. By the way, um, I always know what time it is in here because I have a clock on the back wall. So you can stop waving at me when I've gone 30 minutes, okay? Thankfully, nobody in this church waves. I appreciate that. Unlike Eastern world religions, Christianity is linear when it comes to time. You know what that means? You know what that means? Christianity, the Bible teaches that time in the eyes of God has a beginning and an end. It's always moving forward. Unlike Hinduism, the teaching of reincarnation, uh, the Eastern pantheistic philosophies, the New Age movement in our culture, they're circular. They go round and round and round and nothing ever changes. You're hoping that you've lived a a good enough life so that next time you come back as someone better, more prominent, more established, you hope not to go backwards in that chain and come back as a, you know, there you go, I hear it all, a frog. Yeah, there we go. See, unlike those cyclical, circular ideas concerning time, your Bible stands apart. It stands alone. Your Bible sees time as linear. God is linear when it comes to time and humanity. There is a beginning. There is progress. It's always moving forward. And he's even described the end to us. The Bible reveals two very important things concerning time. Number one, it's running out. It's running out. Job chapter 7 and verse 6 says this. Job is speaking. My days come and go swifter than the click of knitting needles. You ever seen someone knit who really knows what they're doing? My grandmother used to sit on the couch. We could hardly hear the television for the clicking. Click, 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 click. Let me read again. My days come and go swifter than the click of knitting needles, and then the yarn runs out. An unfinished life. Job is emphasizing the fact that in life, our time is always running out because it's linear, it's moving forward. The second thing the Bible emphasizes is that time passes quickly. It passes quickly. Despite what a 12-year-old thinks when when we're on the road to Atlanta, are we there yet? How much longer? Despite what you feel when you're younger, the Bible wants you to understand that time goes by quickly. James 4, verse 14, James wrote, What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. David wrote in Psalm 39, verse 5, You, God, have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is nothing before you. Each man's life is but a a breath. You see, the Bible doesn't emphasize the various paths we might take in life, like many of the authors in our culture. The Bible emphasizes, and I'm talking about David, and I'm talking about James, and I'm talking about John, and I'm talking about Moses, and I'm talking about Solomon. The Bible emphasizes the brevity of life, the short time that we're here. So since we're so conscious of time, we always know what time it is, And since we interpret time so differently based upon typically how old we are, how much time we've used versus how much time is left, here's the big question that I'd like you to consider. What are you doing with your time? What am I doing with my time? How do I spend my time? How will how I use my time differ in 2022 
from 2021. According to Psalm 90 and Moses, I should be living with the end in mind. When it comes to time, I'm going to show you this in a minute. Moses, God, the Bible wants you to live with the end in mind. You you say, that's a very morbid thought. It's not morbid. It's not like, you know, well, I learned today we got to live with the end in mind. So every time, you know, you're walking through town and you got your head kind of hung down. Somebody says, hey, man, how's it going? Oh, not very good. The end is near. Time's running out. That's what I learned in church today. No, no, no. It's not a morbid thought. It's a practical thought. We exercise this idea every time we see our time running out. When summer vacation is coming to a close, what do you think? Good grief, I've only got seven more days. We got to do something special. We got to do something outrageous. When Christmas break is coming to a close, man, I've done nothing but lay around and watch TV. I got to get with it and do something great before I have to go back to school. Soldiers who are being shipped out in a matter of three weeks, they're going to have to leave their family for nine months or more. They're looking for some way to maximize the time that they have left. It's a practical idea. What's wrong with a 20-year-old, a 40-year-old, or a 60-year-old living with the end in mind? What's wrong with that? It helps us make the most of the time we have Remaining. Now, you probably know much about Moses. Let my people go, you know, Ten Commandments kind of thing. Leader of God's chosen people, the Israelites. Let me tell you a few things you may not know. Moses was born a Hebrew, but raised an Egyptian. You remember his mother, in an effort to save his life, set him afloat on the water, and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the palace. He became a prince in Egypt. Moses, at the young, early age of his 20s, he's in his mid-20s, as an Egyptian, knowing deep down inside he was a Hebrew, saw one man, a Hebrew, getting beaten up by two Egyptians, and Moses had to take action. Moses stepped in and clobbered those two Egyptians, even to the point of killing them. Then he realized, I'm going to be a fugitive I'm going to have to run and hide in the wilderness. So Moses goes from prince in Egypt to fugitive. So he flees to the wilderness. He meets a young lady, falls in love, marries her, starts tending her father's sheep. Her father's name was Jethro. I have trouble always remembering her name, but I can always remember Jethro. His father's name was Jethro, and Jethro uh, had Moses tend his sheep in the desert, listen to this, for 40 years. So so stop and think about this. He goes from prince, a great leader in Egypt, to shepherd. Moses is an Old Testament type of Christ just because of that. From king to shepherd was Jesus. Moses too, from prince to shepherd. Now imagine yourself sitting in the desert all by yourself, tending your father-in-law's sheep, You have no real possessions of your own. You've not accomplished much with your life. You were raised in the pagan, idolatrous culture that was Egypt, where they had many gods. You're confused about your national heritage. You have no real understanding of your spiritual heritage. You have no idea that you've been chosen by God. You're just tending another man's sheep. Moses had to be questioning the existence of God. He had to be questioning the point of his life. 
he had to be wrestling with how he spent his time. But then God speaks. Exodus chapter 2, the bush is on fire, the burning bush. And God reveals to Moses, hey, I need you. I want to employ you. I want you to join me in my work. Psalm 90, that we're about to read, was very likely written toward the latter stages of Moses' life when the first generation of Israelites had left their bondage and then wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, grumbling and complaining the entire time, and they were beginning to die off before entering the promised land. That was the punishment for their rebellion and disobedience. That's when Moses sits down and pens the words to Psalm 90. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. Moses writes, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay, don't just skip right over that. Moses has just revealed God's perspective on time. The beauty of this is Moses, as a human being, already sees it. He grasps it. He gets it. From everlasting eternity past, God, to everlasting eternity future, you are God. You have always been, and you will always be, and here I am somewhere in the middle with my mere handbreadth of a life, my breath of a life, a vapor, a mist, you are everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's God's context of time. Verse 3, you turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. Verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Ever hear somebody say, oh, you know what the good book says? It says a thousand years to God is like a day. It comes from that verse. That's where it comes from. Verse number five, yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning, it springs up new, but by evening, it's dry and withered. How long is my life from God's perspective? I'm like grass that peeks out in the morning, but by evening, it's gone. That's reality. Keep reading. Verse seven. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. Remember the story of the children of Israel. They spent 40 years chasing other idols. God delivered time and time again, and they continued to doubt him. They grumbled about the food. They grumbled about the sleeping accommodations. The children of Israel, with Moses as their leader, had given God plenty of reason for righteous indignation. If you were in God's shoes and you had to deal with these people, you'd have been indignant as well. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you. That teaches that man's greatest problem in this tiny, brief little life that we have is our sin. That's our greatest problem that we can't seem to fix. Our secret sins in light of your presence. Verse 9, All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Again, man is in great need before God. We cannot accomplish, even in a lifetime, which we think is a really long time, what we need most desperately. 
There's just not enough time. We finish with a moan, verse 10. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and then they fly away. Now, don't misunderstand. Moses is not pessimistic here about his own life. It's not that your life doesn't matter. It's a good life. The fact is, it passes too quickly. That's the point that Moses is making. In light of the whole, in light of the linear plan of God, which began eternity past and doesn't end until eternity future, what is my life? What Moses is trying to communicate to us, the reader, is that it is pointless to try and find meaning in this life. Not because this life isn't good, not because this life doesn't count. It's pointless to try to find meaning in this life because it simply passes too quickly. There's not enough time. My only hope, and you'll see this in a minute, my only hope is to somehow inject myself into God's plan like Moses did. Do you remember several years ago, we went through chapter by chapter the book of Ecclesiastes? You want some awesome philosophical reading? Go to Ecclesiastes. Solomon, an aging king, is looking back over his life. It reads like his diary. It's a personal work by the aging king. And in Ecclesiastes, Solomon makes a couple of things very clear. It's only children, immature children psychopaths, dictators that make life all about themselves. And history doesn't look with favor on those kinds of people. Besides, intuitively we know that our lives should amount to something more meaningful than that. Solomon wants you to understand it. Moses wants you to understand it here. Notice verse 2. I read it a minute ago. From everlasting to everlasting... You are God. That is the context of our lives. That is the context of our time. I'm supposed to see me and my time in light of God's eternal plan. God's connection. Somewhere in the middle, you've got eternity past, you've got eternity future, and somewhere in the middle, we hope to connect with God. That's the only thing meaningful about it. And if we can, like Moses, join him or participate in his plan, that indeed would seem to be the goal. God invites us to find meaning. Keep reading. Look at verse 11. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear. That word means worship or reverence. The beginning of wisdom is fearing the Lord. It's not, ah! It's not that kind of fear. It's reverence. It's awe. You know what? Personal pet peeve. We throw around the word awesome too much in this culture. Man, day after Christmas sale at the mall, I got a parking spot right up front. Awesome. No, it's not awesome. The Bible describes the awe and glory of God as being so powerful. None of us are allowed to see it because it'd kill us. Keep reading. If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear, the worship, the reverence that is due you. That sounds pretty ominous to me, but remember, it's a statement of reverence. Again, the problem is we can't see God. If we could see God, catch a glimpse of God, 
We'd join the pro- program more quickly, I'm certain. We'd give him the glory, the honor that's due. Verse 12, here it comes, watch. Teach us to number our days. What does that mean? That means live with the end in mind. Teach us to number our days. Live with the end in mind that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What is that? That's a new perspective. That's a new way of looking at our time. That's insight. That's maturity. That's what enables us to live productive lives. We gain the heart of wisdom. Skip down to verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Remember what I said. The only life that can deliver a happy new year is the surrendered life. Because the surrendered life is the blessed life, the life of favor. May the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. We should view our lives and our time in the context of what God is doing. But the problem is we don't always know what God is doing. I don't always know what God is doing. I rarely know what God is doing. Because I can't see him. I can't see it. Interestingly enough, Moses would become the one person in history that got the greatest glimpse of God's glory, and it almost killed him. You know the story? It comes from Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Moses got a glimpse of the glory of God, and it almost wiped him out. It almost cost him his life. We don't know what God's doing in this eternal plan. Oh, we know much of it, but it's very hard to see how this fits on a Tuesday, right? It's very hard to see how this fits into our 30s or our 50s. It's difficult sometimes, but if we could see it, if we could get a glimpse of what God is doing, it would change our lives. How would it change our lives? It would change how we spend our time. About I don't know, 30 years ago, Steven Spielberg took a stab at this whole idea, witnessing, seeing the glory of God in my all-time favorite movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember this scene right here? Watch. Marion, don't look at it. Shut your eyes, Mary, and don't look at it no matter what happens. great. 
Remember the bad guys, they've stolen the ark. They believe that in the ark of the covenant is the very presence and glory of God. And that's what happened when they opened it. Why did they think that was going to happen? Why did Indy know it was going to happen? Because that's what this book says will happen. That's where Steven Spielberg got that whole scene is from this book. Look, what Moses is saying in Psalm 90 is that if we could see God's glory and somehow survive it, we'd want to offer our 70 years or our 80 years and make them part of his everlasting to everlasting. That's how we would see our time. So I quit with this simple list. Isn't it time for a change? In light of Psalm 90, how about a new perspective? Verse 12, I read it a moment ago. Teach us to number our days. How about a brand new perspective in 2021? I don't care if you're 16 or 60. How about living with the end in mind? Here's number two. How about making better choices? Wise decisions. The end of verse 12. That we may gain a heart of wisdom. A heart of wisdom is what leads to a purposeful and meaningful life. And number three, the reality is my life does have a point, but I'm not it. I'm not the point of it. My time is valuable, but not because of me. Verse 17, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us in 2022. Last time, I challenged you. Have you ever made a statement of surrender to God? God, I surrender. In light of who you are, your character, your nature, your attributes, I surrender. Today, I'm asking you to do something similar. Give your time to him. Give your time to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word and sharing to the best of my ability, the best I can, uh, teaching the ideas that you've set forth thousands of years ago that are still impacting lives today. Father, teach us to number our days that we may gain that elusive heart of wisdom. I pray it all because of my faith in you, with the desire to join you in your work with the time that you've given me. And I pray it because of Christ. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic weekend. I will see you next time.